This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Quote, Of all the more ancient systems, the Democritian is of the greatest consequence. The most rigorous necessity is presupposed in all things. There are no sudden or strange violations of nature's course. Now, for the first time, the collective, anthropomorphic, mythic view of the world has been overcome. Now, for the first time, do we have a rigorous, scientific, useful hypothesis. As such, materialism has always been of the greatest utility. It is the most down-to-earth point of view. It proceeds from real properties of matter, and it does not indifferently leave out the simplest forces, as is done by accounts of mind or that of final ends by Aristotle. It is a grand idea, this entire world of order and purposiveness, of countless qualities to be traced back to externalizations of one force of the most basic sort. Matter, moving itself according to general laws, produces a blind, mechanistic result, which appears to be the outline of a highest wisdom. End quote. That was Nietzsche from his lecture on Democritus in the pre-Platonic lecture series. Democritus was the philosopher of ancient Greece who coined the term atom for the concept of the smallest unit of matter. Democritus asserted that all matter was made up of forms constructed of smaller units, and the smallest of these were atoms. Through strictly naturalistic processes, atoms interact, and from a totally blind nature, we get all of the movements and emergent phenomena that we experience in reality. And so here we see, in Nietzsche's estimation, the significance of Democritus, the first truly materialistic or purely materialistic natural philosopher who overcomes all of these mythic personifications of the world and all of these appeals to a non-mechanistic first cause or metaphysical forces such as love or hate, um, such as what you know had been introduced by previous figures in their explanations of the world, Democritus doesn't have to introduce a moral or metaphysical element to explain existence, as, for example, Empedocles did before him. He does not have to appeal to noose, uh, the element of there being some underlying intellect governing the world, as we see in, for example, Anaxagoras, who also preceded Democritus. Um, and Anaxagoras, you know, he sometimes has to invoke a int- divine intellect as an explanation, even though he was driving, along with the other pre-Platonic philosophers, towards a sort of methodological materialism. In Democritus, as Nietzsche interprets him, the Greeks reach a zenith of materialism, and this is what he des- designates as a mathematical atomism. In this, all qualitative descriptions can be put into quantities. All movement of the universe occurs without the need of an intelligence, and this opens up the possibility for science to branch off down its various paths. Nietzsche here acknowledges the power, the utility of atomism as a framework for understanding the world. And he believes that atomism is the direction in which the science of his own day was proceeding. But notice another element in Nietzsche's words about Democritus. Um, Something he sees in Democritus is very fascinating in light of Nietzsche's own ideas, which he would not fully 
describe until much later in his career. Uh, he clearly shows an interest in the grand idea, as he calls it, of an entire world being called forth in all of its infinite complexities from a single force. Indeed, throughout the pre-Platonic lectures, Nietzsche believes that the Greek drive to philosophy revealed that underlying the philosophical project is a will to bound the world within as few first principles as possible. The zenith of that attempt is therefore a single principle. This was the task of the philosopher in the days of the pre-Platonics when science and philosophy were still unified to explain reality by as few possible laws. And so can Nietzsche dare to undertake such a task in his own time of finding a single force to explain the entirety of existence from which all the other principles can be derived? I think the spark of that idea occurs here. And note again that this is a materialist endeavor for Nietzsche. He does not conceive of this quest as in itself necessarily metaphysical, because like Democritus, he does not reach into the heavens for explanations wherever there's a gap, but rather attempts to explain the physical solely by means of the physical. Nietzsche's own attempt culminates with the concept of will to power. Will to power is the single principle, formula, law, or force, whatever we want to call it, by which Nietzsche will attempt to explain the entire world. And while will to power need not be taken to this level of this kind of perspective on it in order to be useful, I mean, many people employ will to power simply as an ethical or psychological principle, including myself in, in many ways. But this strange intersection of will to power with the explanations for the physical world is in the backdrop of Nietzsche's philosophy. And it's tied in with his odd theories of time and with his notion of the eternal recurrence. And it's been argued that will to power, therefore, first emerges for Nietzsche, not in a moral or psycho psychological aspect, but while he's in the process of examining scientific ideas. And, um, you know, insofar as we may say that science itself is doing ontology, that's what he's doing, right? So if we've abandoned the true world and we believe the ontological reality to be the material world that we all live in, um, this, in that sense, you could say that Nietzsche is talking about will to power as a sort of ontological force. Um, this idea comes with a million caveats, of course. And for all of those, you can listen to the preceding episodes of the podcast. For today, however, the topic is Nietzsche's scientific influences for the idea of will to power and will to power as an explanatory principle within physics or within the context of thinking uh, about physics. Can we make any sense of will to power in this sense? Uh, does it have any use for us for, you know, today? And can understanding this scientific angle on the will to power give us any insight into the other nuances of Nietzsche's philosophy? And I would say that it does. Um, it's not required that you listen to the previous episode, Descent into Materialism, but I'll just say at this point, you probably will get more out of this one if you listen to that one first, since it gives a lot of context for the way Nietzsche thinks and how his philosophy of science compares and contrasts with previous views of science. Um, but just as a summary, I guess, a brief synopsis, Nietzsche is heavily influenced by neo-Kantian interpretations of the history of science. 
He draws as much insight from the pre-Platonic philosophers of ancient Greece as he does from contemporary figures. And finally, Nietzsche is himself very much engaged in a dialogue with the sciences and addressing himself to ideas about the philosophy of science um, proposed by the great philosophers that came before him. And so more than anything, if you didn't listen to that talk, the most important thing to know is that Nietzsche was very much up to date on the developments in the sciences. He was very concerned with the philosophy of science. And rather than being an irrationalist, he sees himself, at least in his early career, as being a scientific materialist. Now, of course, some of his later statements might actually con contradict that. But nevertheless, I think that is how he understood his idea of will to power at this point as coming out of a dialectic between past materialist philosophers of science. And the funny thing here is, I, I can't call it dialectical materialism, because Marxists have claimed that particular designation. But what we're talking about here is quite literally a dialogue, a dialectical development of a view of the world occurring between materialists, in a, materialists in a scientific sense. And we could say that today, Almost all scientists are the product of this dialectic insofar as they're all mostly materialists, at least, again, in a methodological sense. Sure, there are some oddballs out there who profess panpsychism and similar things, but in Nietzsche's time, not everyone was materialist. And the so that's why it's important to, to zero in on the fact that it is this materialist branch of neo-Kantian philosophy that's most influential in Nietzsche's thinking here, and that there were actually other options out there um, at the time. And we'll get into those a little bit as we continue. Again, we find Friedrich Albert Lange, who wrote The History of Materialism, is a key influence on Nietzsche's thought. Uh, we talked a lot about Lange last time as sort of guiding Nietzsche through understanding the pre-Platonic philosophers. I thought I'd read some quotations here that um, more straightforwardly establish that link and help support the case for this week's talk, that Democritus of all people would be a main influence on Nietzsche and his will to power idea. But when we examine how Democritus is treated in Longa's work, this interpretation comes together very nicely. So in any case, George J. Stack noted that Nietzsche... Uh, said that Lange's book, History of Materialism, was a, quote, treasure chest of ideas presented to him, end quote. This recalls Whitehead's phrasing that Plato's work is an inexhaustible mine of suggestion. For Nietzsche, he found that in Lange. And so Nietzsche wrote in 1866, quote, the most significant philosophical work to appear in the last decade is without a doubt Lange, history of materialism, about which I could write voluminous praise. Kant, Schopenhauer, and this book by Lange. I do not need more than that, end quote. Now, of course, Nietzsche would expand beyond those influences, such as Kant and Schopenhauer, and he would therefore expand beyond Lange as well. But while Schopenhauer's name, for example, comes up all the time when we talk about Nietzsche's influences, Lange hardly comes up at all. And so that's one of the reasons why I think it's important to emphasize him throughout this sort of detour into Nietzschean science we're doing here at the end of the season, because um, he's so explanatory of um, Nietzsche's thinking on this. So again, when it comes to Nietzsche's interpretation of Democritus, Democritus is central to Longa's book. 
while Langa mentions the other pre-Socratic philosophers, or pre-Platonics as Nietzsche calls them, Democritus gets far more attention from Langa than any other among the pre-Socratics. And as a matter of fact, Langa's book actually begins with a chapter entitled The Early Atomists, especially Democritus. Um, not only does this discussion of Democritus begin the work, but Democritus plays a central role in the entire book for Langa. Um, Langa asserts in that work, quote, the modern atomic theory has been gradually developed from the atomism of Democritus, end quote. The centrality of Democritus as the main pre-Socratic figure was sort of shared in the viewpoint of Zeller. We talked a little bit about Zeller last time. He's a semi-Hegelian philologist with whom Nietzsche had some agreements and some disagreements. It's worth noting, noting <clears throat> excuse me, that for the pre-Platonic lectures, Nietzsche mostly critiques Zeller. But one of the only points of agreement that he finds is that Zeller is aligned with Longa when it comes to understanding the importance of Democritus. And so Democritus is the culmination of the materialist project in ancient Greece. Um, he also presents us with another archetypal personality among the pre-Platonic philosophers. So if we'll remember Nietzsche sees, uh, he thinks it's very important that the pre-Platonics emerge at a time before there's a, you know, definitive thing such as such as a school or caste of philosophers and each of them has to sort of define what it means to be a philosopher on his own and so he presents all of them as this uh, series of fascinating unique personalities and when it comes to democritus he's known as the laughing philosopher he's often contrasted with heraclitus the philosopher who is associated with sadness and melancholy and i personally might question these designations as maybe being a bit anachronistic, but nevertheless, you know, it, this is the common picture. Uh, Democritus is the philosopher who laughs, right? And perhaps um, this is because Democritus praises cheerfulness in his own work. And so we have a presentation of a worldview, which is for the first time scientific and more or less fully liberated from mythology, but this is done cheerfully by someone who meets this entirely material existence with a laugh. And so we cannot help but see something resembling a joyous science within the figure of Democritus. While, you know, Nietzsche probably got that coinage, the phrase gay science or joyous science from Emerson. Um, but Nietzsche's admiration for Democritus, for for the Democritian approach to life and to knowledge, that may have been a, one of the influences that sort of led to him to conceive of the concept of such a gay science, right? And so not only does Nietzsche describe the atomism of Democritus as constituting this most consequential of all ancient theories, but furthermore, we see in Democritus and his forerunner, Leucippus, another innovation. They produce a perspectival theory of human experience in which we might recognize the prefiguration of the sort of phenomena, noumena split of Kant, um, which influenced the scientific thinking of the neo-Kantians. So Democritus's description of thought and of sensation are that images, or we might say representations, affect the body from outside, or they stimulate the body from outside. There's an outside stimulus, which is then transformed into an image. And that even the basis of thoughts themselves are images or representations, we might say. And so certainly Nietzsche would recognize, uh, he, he recognizes the kinship here in this picture of cognition with Schopenhauer and the Neo-Kantians, von Helmholtz and Lange.
But we must uh, turn to the most consequential aspect of Democritus. What is the atomism of Democritus, the man who gave us the very word atom, which we use to this day? In the atomic theory of Democritus, we have the idea of atoms as indivisible. They're indivisible units. They're the bedrock unit of matter. Um, so naturally, they're the point at which particles of matter cannot be divided into any more parts. Different forms of matter are simply different arrangements of atom, atoms or different shapes um, that exist in different positions in space. Bodies are all constructed of atoms, and when bodies perish, the atoms in them disassemble, but the atoms themselves are not created or destroyed, so we have conservation of matter. And furthermore, Democritus sees atoms as moving entirely in accord with laws governing weight. So they don't undergo, uh, they're completely explained by mechanistic processes, they don't undergo um, direct contact, and action at a distance does not occur. Now, of course, this means there's an inevitable split or separation between what we perceive through the senses and what actually exists. Sort of the hallmark of Greek philosophy, right? Um, and that would seem to be required furthermore by the Democritian account of perception and cognition. So if there are these units of matter that are so small we cannot see them you know, with enough specificity to see the boundaries between them, such a difference between what we perceive and what the world truly is would seem to be required, right? And so nevertheless, um, we can still say that there's a, something different has, has occurred here, though, um, just to push back on that. that the, this is not quite the distinction between perception and knowledge of the type held by, say, Plato or the Christians, um, in which true knowledge of the world sort of reveals forces and principles which transcend the material world. Democritus still holds some methodological materialism, as we've called it. Um, it's merely, you know, the difference between perception and the true world, quote-unquote, in the case of Democritus, would be the equivalent in modern times to, like, the difference between what one sees with their eyes, with the naked eye, versus what one sees through an electron microscope, right? Unless we're, what we're going we're gonna to say that what we see through the microscope constitutes a metaphysical world, which I don't think most people would, then we can excuse Democritus on this. And it's worth noting that later scientific discovery backs up what he said. We do see smaller and smaller building blocks. And so Democritus has been vindicated. Uh, I, although I should say the term used for atom in the modern day doesn't really correspond to atoms as Democritus described them, since the atom is by definition the smallest possible unit of matter. So once you start talking about subatomic particles, you're using the word in a different way than Democritus would have understood it, right? Uh, just by definition there. So furthermore, uh, also, Democritus is not perfect in every sense as a materialist. Um, for example, he permits that between atoms of matter exist atoms of soul, and soul is conceived as a kind of invigorating force, which Whitlock asserts might serve the function of being a prefiguration of the will to power. Uh, a prefiguration in the mind of Nietzsche. The atoms of soul are almost more like a field than what we would consider to be solid matter. But remember, materialism doesn't mean that things like energy don't exist. Um, perhaps we could see the Democritian view as sort of a, like a low-resolution understanding that there has to be some sort of energy in the system, 
So it's still a material explanation. And the other component in how Nietzsche thinks about will to power scientifically might have been influenced by precursors to field theory, right? Um, and so he's maybe able to interpret Democritus in that way. Uh, in any case, Democritus does have to account for mind and for consciousness and movement. And what all this ends up being is yet another form of material, of matter. And that's very different from how Heraclitus or Anaxagoras or Empedocles might see something like mind or spirit. And so in a passage from Longa, he expresses this aspect of Democritus as one of the triumphs of his natural philosophy. Longa writes, quote, Democritus regarded mind not as the world-building force, but only as one form of matter amongst others. And this is just Democritus's superiority for every philosophy which seriously attempts to understand the phenomenal world must come back to this point. The special case of those processes we call intellectual must be explained from the universal laws of motion, or we have no explanation at all. But he who devises some bungling explanation of nature, including the rational actions of mankind, starting from mere conjectural a priori notions, which is it is impossible for the mind to picture intelligibly to itself, destroys the whole basis of science, no matter whether he be called Aristotle or Hegel. Good old Kant would here undoubtedly in principle declare himself on the side of Democritus and against Aristotle and Zeller, end quote. So um, maybe that passage started out rather clear, but then he starts talking about all these other figures. So let's clarify this passage a little bit. Um, uh, well, the first thing we might bring up in clarifying the passage further, there, there's one of Nietzsche's unpublished notes that Whitlock references. Um, but Whitlock references this note without a citation, only to call it overlooked and cryptic, which is funny because he himself overlooked the citation. So I don't know where to find this in Nietzsche's work. But according to Whitlock, uh, Nietzsche wrote that his intellectual heritage is derived from anti-teleological Spinozists on the one hand and mechanists on the other. Uh, and I think that's justifiably a rather cryptic remark because Nietzsche says he may be understood properly only in this context. And that's a very, you know, uh, on the face of it, that's a strange origin story for Nietzsche's intellectual tradition, for, for he himself to give. Um, I mean, it would probably sound, sound strange to pretty much anyone who hasn't looked into this angle of Nietzsche's thought, his philosophy of science, right? But so when he invokes Spinozists, uh, obviously that refers to Spinoza. Baruch Spinoza was a philosopher from the uh, 17th century. He was uh, from Amsterdam, or he lived in Amsterdam, but he was of uh, Sephardic Jewish origin, and he's one of the leading figures among the rationalists. And he crafted a worldview in which mankind and the world as we know it, and even God, are viewed from a sort of naturalistic lens. And Nietzsche had a great respect for Spinoza. He called him a precursor to his own ideas. And one similarity we'll immediately uh, see when we compare Nietzsche and Spinoza, for example, is that both reject the existence of free will, uh, at least in the way free will is normally presented. Um, Spinoza's rejection of Descartes' mind-body dualism also aligns Spinoza with Nietzsche's out outlook, right? But Spinoza had caused something 
uh, he had caused a mighty controversy called, you know, either the Spinozist controversy or the pantheism controversy. This emerges in the German philosophical um, circles and the, you know, academic and philosophical circles. This is because Spinoza had been a pantheist and he had thus seen God as the effective force in all things. His picture of the world was therefore naturalistic, but not really materialist. I mean, it's dependent on the power of an ever-present divine force. It's less personal in Spinoza's view than the traditional Christian view, something more akin to a force or a field, right? But it's nevertheless associated with God and as an imminent, all-encompassing divinity. So what came with the popularity of Spinozistic metaphysics in the German intellectual circles was a tendency towards teleologist positions on science. Um, what does that mean? It means even though there's a genuine attempt to understand the world via natural law, this is still done within a framework in which the world exists for some purpose. So, and that's what, you know, a telos means is a purpose. So it's still done within a framework in which the world exists for the sake of some divine force, for the purpose crafted by an absolute mind, or whatever the case might be. Um, and this goes all the way back to Aristotle. You know, a teleology for the world in the Aristotelian sense, um, you know, it, it implies that the reality we live in and experience is a contingent reality, subject to some other dominant reality. If this life exists for some purpose or, or ends, that means there's some other thing whose end it serves whether that's another world or this imminent divine intellect or whatever. And so that's that claim of a teleological universe uh, became very popular in Germany. And then there was a backlash to this. There arose an anti-teleologist camp among German intellectuals. And this even included many Spinozists. They took influence from Spinoza's ideas, but nevertheless came down against teleology. And so... These are the anti-teleological Spinozists that Nietzsche references. Uh, in that quotation we just looked at from Longa, he sort of implies what this divide is. He, he shows us the divide and who he's talking about, right? Between the teleologists and the anti-teleologists. So he brings up Aristotle and he groups them together with Hegel. These are examples of thinkers who had teleological explanations of nature. So Aristotle's inclusion, rather obvious. Hegel's included here, also rather obviously. He sees Hegel sees life and history as a revelation of the absolute. So for Hegel, life and history, therefore, have a telos, which is the revelation of the absolute mind to itself. Or however, you know, I'd love to have a Hegelian on. If anyone knows a good Hegelian, um, you know, maybe <laughs> I don't. I mean, I know uh, I know of them, right? I know Zizek and things like that, but I don't know any uh, good. Hegelian philosophers who are like popular. So if you know one, let me know. But anyway, that's just an aside. So Zeller, for his Hegelianism, he's in included as another candidate, as an opposing figure to the worldview of Longa, who comes down on this anti-teleological side, right? So Zeller, as we mentioned, somewhat Hegelian. So he's included with Hegel and uh, Aristotle. Now, on the anti-teleologist side, Longa suggests Kant would stand over on his side of the question, on his side of the aisle, and that would uh, also be the side of Democritus. 
And we could recall the passage we quoted from last week uh, from Kant, where Kant sort of delights in the prospect that one could give him matter and he could give you a world from it, right? That simply applying his reason to understanding the laws and patterns governing matter and its interactions with the world, you could start with the universe in a chaotic, unformed state of just one kind of, you know, thing, one kind of matter, one form, fundamental form of matter, and Kant can give you a world out of it, right? That's exactly what Democritus did. So it makes Kant, Democritus, Lange, and yes, Nietzsche in the camp, which is anti-teleological. So Nietzsche, accordingly, in his pre-Platonic lectures, draws the comparison between Democritus and Kant. So, and since Lange drew that same comparison, we could conclude this is another thing he possibly gets from Lange, uh, that we might be seeing Lange's influence in that very passage. And so when Nietzsche says in this cryptic note that anti-teleological Spinozists are one camp from which he descends intellectually, uh, these would be figures uh, like Lange and Überweg, who were influenced by Spinoza, but rejected Spinoza's idea of a telos for the world. And then the other people who would easily say are mechanists. And so we might just say people who would, this would include anyone who has anti-teleological views um, or methodologically anti-teleological views, especially those who existed even prior to Spinoza. And so figures like Bacon, Kant, uh, and of course, Democritus. And so another quote from Lange puts this even more directly. Again, this is from History of Materialism. Quote, Aristotle complains repeatedly that Democritus, leaving aside teleological causes, had explained everything by a necessity of nature. This is exactly what Bacon praises most strongly in his book on the advancement of learning. End quote. And so, of course, Lange agrees with Bacon and not Aristotle. And... It demonstrates in the way how Bacon praises Democritus for the very same thing that Aristotle criticizes. It reveals that dichotomy, anti-teleological thinking versus teleological. And so Longa suggests where Democritus may have been lacking. And this, I think, provides an area in which Nietzsche sees a way that he can innovate. And so Longa writes, quote, Of all the great principles underlying materialism in our time, one only is wanting in Democritus, and that is the abolition of all teleology by the principle of the development of the purposeful from the unpurposeful. We find in him no trace of that false teleology, which may be described as the hereditary foe of all science, but we discover nowhere an attempt to explain the origin of these adaptations from the blind sway of natural necessity." End quote. And so Lange argues the only true refutation of a teleology for the world, you know, the refutation of the world having a purpose, an intelligence, or like some sort of world-building mind, it, it would be to show how purpose can arise from purposelessness. Because we, as conscious beings, we have minds, we have consciousness. We, we come up with concepts such as purpose. We create things that do have a telos. And we give a telos to things which we did not even create. So, you know, you craft something like a chair, which has a telos in its very creation, right? The chair is for your sitting. But you could also use a tree stump to sit upon, right? And so 
it's the fact that we have this mind which not only perceives things, but also imparts a purpose to things according to what we value or need or prefer. And so a materialist understanding is confronted. I mean, in some sense, you could reduce it to what we today call the hard problem of consciousness, where you have to account for a mind, which invents ideas like purpose, goal, and end, which means your materialist theory ultimately has to take account of values, meaning, right? A naturalistic theory, which doesn't reach outside the world of matter, that can provide a meaning for mankind, or rather more precisely, provides an explanation for how meaning arises, where it comes from, why we have a notion of it. And that's, to Longa, would be the only acceptable refutation of teleology, or the only effective thing, the only thing that will really do the trick. And so that's an interesting clue, I think, if we take it seriously, as to what Nietzsche's philosophical project becomes aimed at. It's another way of seeing how these questions are opening up for Nietzsche as we keep going here. But by refusing to engage in teleology, admirable as that is, without really giving that explanation that Longa sees as essential, Democritus leaves his theories open to misinterpretation. Democritus believes that nothing is up to random chance, but as Longa notes, his materialist denial of final causes led some to misunderstand Democritus as ultimately preaching just such a belief in chance, right? And so a distinction has to be made between chance and necessity, which Nietzsche sees in Democritus's work and on that basis um, sort of uses that to refute the people, refute the interpretation of Democritus as simply believing in random chance by saying he doesn't believe in chance, he believes in necessity. And we could say maybe there's a Nietzsche can see this in one of his other influences because Schopenhauer made this uh, distinction between uh, basing things on chance and basing things on the principle of sufficient reason. And so uh, Nietzsche also makes this uh, distinction between chance and necessity here, um, or he's able to see it very clearly. And so through the influence of Longa and Nietzsche, we have a clear battle line, teleology as the opposing force of science. And Longa's main critique of Democritus was that he rejected teleology, but he didn't adequately defeat it, we might say, by accounting for telos naturalistically, or for teloi as we encounter them, right? Or as our minds come up with them, uh, the, the process of uh, teloi generation, we might say, right? What is... Uh, um, the production of uh, telos, where does that come from? And so Democritus sets the stage for future anti-teleologists, such as Nietzsche, to address this issue. Whitlock writes, quote, Longa and Nietzsche nearly identify teleological reason with religious anthropomorphism. Democritus's atomism rejecting teleology, if incompletely, his intellectual discovery laid the groundwork for the mathematical Pythagoreans, end quote. It's worth saying Nietzsche would later grow out of this position, um, or out of pure mechanism, we'll say. And it's very subtle, the change in mindset for Nietzsche, but it's difficult to place later Nietzsche within this, like, solidly and completely mechanistic camp. And as his thought matured, he would later critique Longa and Überweg 
as being part of the, quote, church of materialism, end quote. Um, and I think it's because Nietzsche eventually becomes skeptical and questions the whole belief in cause and effect, which is, it's like almost a whole nother can of worms, right? It's, uh, it's nevertheless still very instructive here. And we're thinking about what started Nietzsche down the road, thinking about many of his later ideas to consider how the foundation was mechanistic, materialistic, anti-teleological, um, that's why I would say he starts from a truly atheistic position, and I said he's the first truly atheistic philosopher, or I characterized him that way, uh, like way back in the first episode, as I recall correctly. So now, in discussing the often overlooked significance of Democritus to Nietzsche's philosophy, we have seen how Nietzsche's thought is so deferential to that of Friedrich Albert Longa um, that in some sense, we can't even really compare the thoughts of the two because the overlap is near total. But there was an aspect to Nietzsche's thought that went beyond Longa, and that is insofar as he brought in a scientist who was regarded at the time as an obscure or even a, a fringe sort of figure, and that's the Croatian physicist, mathematician, and philosopher of science, Roger Joseph Boscovich his name and his native tongue would be like Rogiero, but I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce Croatian. So, um, he lived and wrote in the 18th century and his, uh, most famous work is, uh, published in 1758 theory of natural philosophy derived from a single law of forces, which exist in nature, which contains Boscovich's atomic theory and his, uh, theory of forces. Boscovich was attractive to Nietzsche for a reason that would be very obvious in light of our analysis of how Nietzsche has been thinking about the project of science. Because Boscovich provided a single equation, a single uh, force for describing how every different manifestation of force um, expresses itself in the physical world. And so Boscovich's ideas, they actually did not find a wide purchase at the time when he was writing. But his place in science has been somewhat rejuvenated in recent years. Um, there are some such as Dragoslav Stoilikovich. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name, but he's called Boscovich the father of modern science and a uh, sort of forerunner to the quantum theory or, you know, quantum physics um, and uh, all sorts of things. So in bringing Boscovich into his thinking, Nietzsche parts ways with many of these figures that we've talked about as being his influences. Boscovich is the final element in Nietzsche's scientific thinking that we haven't yet covered. And with Boscovich's help, Nietzsche goes beyond all his precursors. And Whitlock uh, describes this, and I'm going to quote from his commentary on the lecture series once more in an abridged form, quote, Kant himself recognized the continual problem presented by motion within Newtonian physics. That is, within his own account of the phenomenal world. Kant's transcendental deduction of time and space as forms of intuition does not imply any solution to Newton's great theoretical enigma of motion, even though motion is not included in the three antinomies of reason. As long as Newtonian physics provides the only reasonable account of the phenomenal world, the problem of motion remains. This is crucial to note. 
Newton introduced the existence of God to explain the enigma of motion. For this reason, among others, Schopenhauer remarked that science solves enigmas only by introducing occult terms. This agrees with Kant's deduction of the a priori judgment God exists. Nietzsche knew well that motion is a physical enigma with profound metaphysical implications. One of Newton's contemporaries, Roger Boscovich, attempted to solve the enigma of motion outside the framework of Newtonian explanation via the principle of action at a distance. Schopenhauer decried this highly controversial principle as another occult force, whereas Kant saw it as a threat to both God and Newton, and so constructed the architectronic of his system in part as a bulwark against Boscovichian physics. This controversy around Boscovich was itself a dynamic and the larger cultural debate about Spinozism, an encroaching materialistic atheism. Boscovich, although a devout Catholic, did not require God to explain motion in his system, as did Newton. For a quite similar reason, Leibnizian monadology was seen as a non-Newtonian alternative to Kantianism that avoided the Boscovichian point-particle system. Uberweg and Lange, following Helmholtz, rejected Boscovich. In this way, they decisively parted company with Nietzsche. End quote. And so uh, he brings up Leibniz at the end there. Um, we don't need to get into the specifics of that. Just to understand, he's sort of saying that Boscovichian physics was so controversial, so scary to people because it could explain motion without appeal to God. Um, you know, he alleges basically Kant sees it therefore as a threat to God and to the Newtonian system, which appeals to God. And even if you must step outside of Newtonianism, well, here we've got uh, Leibniz over here who don't go to Boscovich, right? <laughs> There's an alternative to that. And um, everyone had sort of avoided Boscovich because of this. And Whitlock seems to think that it's because there's this sort of undertone that with Boscovich, even though he's a Catholic, this encroaching materialistic atheism comes with his physics because of what it has the power to do. And so Nietzsche became very excited by Boscovichian point particle theory. Boscovich's point particles are not corpuscular atoms, or sorry, corpuscular atoms, um, as in the New Newtonian system, which form the basis of Kant's understanding as well. So Kant's matter is Newtonian matter, right? And it's made of these corpuscular atoms. And corpuscular atoms are extended. They're bodies, we might say. Um, and so force points, on the other hand, are non-extended, non-corpuscular. Unlike the Democritian atoms or Newtonian atoms, Boscovichian force points do engage in action at a distance. They don't interpenetrate. And in fact, Boscovich mathematically demonstrated how they could both attract and repulse one another in accord with the same underlying mathematical principle. It's very fascinating, even though the math is very much beyond me. In Nietzsche's interpretation of Boscovich, the units that comprise what matter is are less like solid atoms, individual bodies, but more like a field. And these fields are sort of made up of the interaction of force points. Each could be called a quanta of power, or to speak the language of Nietzsche's later philosophy, a quanta of will to power. 
And so, will to power will become, in Nietzsche's philosophical retelling of Boscovichian physics, this qualitative description of what Boscovich's math showed, that the world is endless points of force, all acting and exerting against one another, and manifesting the way that they push against the other forces according to the distance that they act. Or we might say the scale at which the force manifests. And so Whitlock writes that in this way, Nietzsche went beyond Spinoza, Kant, Lange, Uberweg, Helmholtz, and all the Newtonian mechanists. Whitlock writes, quote, Nietzsche sought to take the tradition another step further into point particle theory and to what he would soon call his, quote, force point world, end quote. So by doing this, Nietzsche is trying to get over what you might call sort of like the, the epistemological baggage he's picked up from his biggest influence. It's the transcendental idealism of Schopenhauer. And uh, that sort of, we might say, is inherited from the teleology of Spinoza. Nietzsche is trying to complete this vision of a strictly material world, which was first adumbrated by Democritus. You know, he gave us the rough outline. But Nietzsche knows that his biggest influence philosophically, Schopenhauer, can't help him here because Schopenhauer is not a materialist. And so Nietzsche has to therefore avoid the objections to materialism that figures such as Schopenhauer had raised. Schopenhauer used an argument that is very logical if one operates from the first principles set by Kant, which Schopenhauer accepts. Um, the starting premise of this argument is that we never directly experience a mind-independent reality and that everything we experience is just a representation. Schopenhauer's argument is that then that means the atoms themselves are only a representation. It's something I sort of referenced last week when we were talking. I referenced Donald Hoffman last week. I think I called him David Hoffman, um, which was just a genuine mistake, but I looked it up and his name is actually Donald David Hoffman. So um, congrats to me, because uh, so I technically didn't misname him. But, um, you know, uh, Hoffman remarks upon his realization as a neurologist that looking at a neuron is sort of like looking at a pixel. It's the mind's representation. It's a placeholder for something out there in reality. It's not the reality itself. And so Schopenhauer essentially makes the same argument about the atom. And even if you find the bedrock unit of matter from which you hope to explain all material things, all material processes, you're still just explaining it by way of representation. And that the representation is something indirectly given, as Schopenhauer puts it, right? Uh, it's not the fundamental reality. It's just a symbol of it. And so... Attempting to explain reality by way of representation is compared to Munchausen pulling himself up out of the marsh by pulling up on his own suspenders, right? Or in some versions of the myth, it's by his hair. Uh, it's, you know, where we get the phrase pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, right? It's something that can't be done. Longa carried on this idea of representation from Kant just as Schopenhauer had done, but he became open to Schopenhauer's arguments against materialism because Longa wished to account for representation through the physiology. He, he's giving a physiological and thus a materialistic accounting of what representation is, right? 
because obviously if the physiology produces representations and the physiology is itself known to us through representations we have of it, aren't we assuming what we're trying to prove by appealing to physiology as the explanation, right, for representation? And so uh, your your mind can kind of get tied in knots if you think about this too much. Uh, Longa devotes a great deal of his history of materialism to reconcile these contradictions and defend materialism as a solid grounding for science. He took the time to really take Schopenhauer's philosophical arguments seriously and, and try and rebut them. And so Nietzsche was content to let Longa's arguments on that front do his work for him. Um, and maybe the simplest way to say this without getting too bogged down in this issue is that I sort of paraphrase the argument from Nietzsche himself last week. We can't take the representation as the most fundamental thing because it would mean that our sense organs are themselves the representations of our organs. And so it doesn't seem that we actually gain anything by appealing to the framework of representation in order to object to materialism, right? Um, at best, that would just be an argument that we can't make statements about the basis of reality as it transcends the human mind. But supposing we take it as a given that that's not what science is doing, that we're making statements about the phenomenal world as we experience it, then there's really no problem. And that's what science is doing. So materialism, I think Longa is correct, can serve as a basis for science. Uh, and Schopenhauer's metaphysical objections to that are a bit sort of, um, I don't know, they're a bit old and contrived. And Nietzsche feels he can get over Schopenhauer's metaphysical objections and um, therefore fully go all in on the materialist project and use Boscovich to complete it. And Whitlock summarizes, quote, Nietzsche could rest assured that Schopenhauer's old metaphysical arguments alone would not refute materialism. Whereas Friedrich Albert Longa stood between Kant and materialism, however, Nietzsche went beyond both by rejecting their shared presuppositions of extended Newtonian matter of the corpuscular atom. To do so, he embraced the iconoclastic thought of someone rejected by both Kant and Longa, namely Boscovich, and thus, at the end of his lecture on Democritus, Nietzsche soundly dismisses Schopenhauer's argument and accepts Longa's materialism as a provisional hypothesis until theoretical emendations can be made, end quote. And so the way in which Nietzsche is influenced is interesting, but it's all, just as much so the way Nietzsche goes against prior figures in the history of science is at least as informative for our purposes. Nietzsche believes that in Boscovich, therefore, he's overcome the problem of motion, which obtained in the Newtonian and Kantian model and had prompted Schopenhauer to say that scientific explanations always reach for occult forces, uh, you know, explanations which are not themselves explicable. And this problem dates back to Spinoza's own deus ex machina of using God to shore up the hypothesis. Um, Spinoza, the language he uses, he drew upon the concept which originates in classical antiquity and had been used by Descartes as well of conatus. Conatus is defined as a tendency within bodies for movement. Obviously, we can't stop there with our definition because that would be a just-so argument, right? It's an argument by definition, like uh, the very thing Schopenhauer is criticizing as just being an occult force or the way Nietzsche criticizes Kant for saying that we can have synthetic 
a priori knowledge by virtue of a faculty, right? You're just sort of defining it into existence. So what is the explanation for conatus? What is it on a fundamental level? And when we get right down to it, it's an expression of the power of God is how Spinoza can explain it. It's his, his conception of conatus sees it as an inherent aspect within physical bodies towards driving them towards movement and that it expresses the power of God. And furthermore, he specifies that it constitutes a striving, particularly a striving to exist, and that the striving constituted the actual essence of individual phenomena. And so if this sounds like Schopenhauer's philosophy, we can see the definite parallels in Schopenhauer's conception of the will to live. Will, in Schopenhauer's philosophy, is if not teleological, a sort of metaphysical explanation for reality, which appeals to something not given by empirical experiment. Schopenhauer, if not a teleologist, you know, he's a transcendental idealist, and he's thus opposed to the project of materialism, as we've said. And so the atheistic Schopenhauer is still perfectly willing to say that all things have an essence, an inner character, which is universal, and merely expresses itself in different manifestations, which is defined by Schopenhauer as will. Conatus is a clear influence on the idea of will. It's also an inner essence. It's a striving to exist. And so Schopenhauer, just as Spinoza, is defiant towards any attempt to reduce his conception to purely material explanations. Nietzsche's leap from Democritus to Boscovich is... The way Nietzsche sees it, it's a resolution to the problem. Um, emotion's always been that gap into which God flows. <laughs> God flows into science, right? And so while Nietzsche... Maybe something instructive here is that Nietzsche considered the Eleatics, like Parmenides and Zeno, to be a dead end in the development of Greek scientific thought. But they are instructive to us in that way. Insofar as they deal with the problem of motion by denying it <laughs> altogether, right? Parmenides says that motion is an illusion. Zeno, in his famous paradox, shows how motion, when rendered into quantity, becomes absurd. Like, its infinite divisibility makes nonsense of our own conception of movement and the passage of time. So motion is so problematic that some philosophers just deny that it's real, since it... It was unreasonable for it to exist. And so this is, you know, to Nietzsche, it's a dead end because it doesn't really get us any closer to like reckoning with the reality of the phenomenal world as we experience it. And so, you know, in the history of science and the history of philosophy, we've marched on in spite of the absurdity of motion. Always, you know, even if we have to account for it by making reference uh, to God, you know, something not dissimilar to Parmenides is a conception of true being. We have to make reference to the static, eternal, unchanging reality. God in the machine, making the machine function, either as a first cause or as pantheism or whatever. And so what's happened here is that our final explanations are not rational. Our accounting of the physical world doesn't rise to the standards of what's permissible as a rational explanation. And so Whitlock writes that Nietzsche, quote, acquired what we might call his second-order theory of truth. This second-order principle requires that all first-order theories be only representations within a deeper underlying will. 
so that an adequate theory of matter must understand matter as a representation of will and not as a thing in itself. Note that this still allows work on a first-order theory of nature, but only within the confines of the second-order theory of theories. Nietzsche believed that a great leap, even a revolution as grand as that of Copernicus, would be affected if a first-order theory were to abandon Newtonian corpuscular atomism and shift paradigms to a force-point conception of the world. Boscovician point-particle theory overturned the Newtonian Spinozist paradigm of extended matter, bringing first-order theory of nature into line with second-order principles. By reinterpreting Schopenhauer's notion of will, originally derived from Spinoza's idea of conatus, in terms of unextended force points, all Spinozistic metaphysics, even substance, would be rendered useless. Like Kant, Nietzsche would then be in a position to create the world from an unordered chaos, a world as will to power, end quote. So here we have it. Nietzsche's will to power is, in one sense, a response to centuries of debates in the philosophy of science, an attempt to philosophize about the world in such a way that is adequately reflective of the force point world of Boscovich, um, which to Nietzsche is the only way to understand the world materialistically in a consistent manner in which our theories and our principles uh, completely align and shift things away from the stubborn teleology of Spinoza, the deus ex machina of Kant and Newton, into a pure materialism described by a single force that merely manifests itself in various phenomenal forms. In, un in other words, Nietzsche is talking about a fundamental will, and this is what Boscovich's single mathematical principle represents to Nietzsche, that fundamental will in a quantitative form. Here's another quotation from Whitlock, quote, The anti-teleological motives on Nietzsche's part suggest not that he was a nihilist seeking to enlist science in his campaign against religion, but rather that he was already searching for his own scientific hypothesis, one that would prove anathema to the real nihilists those Europeans who all still clung to a belief in God. He found the scientific vision to be exhilarating and associated it with the tragic Heracleitean Dionysian perspective he had discovered philologically. It proved to him a source of pessimism out of strength, not nihilism. End quote. So as we talked about last time, these lecture notes on the preplatonics speak to a deep, scientific interest. And throughout the preplatonic lectures, we have Nietzsche's various references to the Kant-Laplace hypothesis. You know, that's the hypothesis. The universe came from a disordered gaseous state and was formed by physical laws into the various forms that exist today. We have references to von Baer's pulse rate experiments, or thought experiment, however you want to see it, his discussion of Paracelsus and Lavoisier. These digressions in the lectures are numbered at seven and named by Annie Anders and Carl Schlechter as, quote, seven excursions into the natural sciences, end quote. Annie Anders then wrote the following synopsis of the implications of Nietzsche's interest in the natural sciences and the references that Nietzsche brings up and how he uses them. She writes, quote, 
If we now summarize from the seven excurses what characterizes the natural sciences for Nietzsche, it would be the following three fundamental matters of concern. One, to comprehend nature as one continuous becoming. Two, to explain order in it, nature, by means of purposeless, simple forces. And three, to conceive qualities as quantities. In contrast, the question of the essence of matter, as it might be posed, for example, in relation to Democritus's theory, plays no role for Nietzsche. He finds himself in complete agreement with natural science. It, too, brackets the question of the essence of matter. Nietzsche will later demonstrate this impressively with regard to the Boscovician system. End quote. So, in the pre-Platonic figures, Nietzsche discovers for himself clarity about the activity of the sciences. Thales, Anaximander, and so on contemplated nature as one continuous becoming, insofar as they attempted to find the fundamental nature of matter from which all other forms can be derived. The attempts to explain nature by means of purposeless and simple forces occur throughout the work of Anaxagoras or Democritus. And the last uh, trait, you know, of uh, conceiving qualities as quantities, um, we see that in full force uh, in the later Pythagoreans. They are distinguished by Nietzsche from Pythagoras himself. Uh, Pythagoras himself is supposed to be more of a mythical cult-like figure. The Pythagoreans, on the other hand, gave mathematical explanations of everything of music, of space, of all sorts of qualities and relationships. And this is sort of what it means to translate qualities into quantities. And so it's like, if Democritus is atomism, Democritus plus the later Pythagoreans sort of together birth this mathematical atomism, which is, um, it's the way we think about science today, yet again, right? And so... The ultimate scientific achievement in Nietzsche's eyes is the creation of a single law to describe all patterns and relationships, makes nature into one sing, uh, single continuous becoming, and then, uh, what is the third thing Annie Ender says, translates this into mathematical form. Uh, Newton believed that the laws governing physical bodies could not be reduced to less than three laws. Boscovich, meanwhile, has a single law, right? Um, and so... And with this one mathematical statement, Boscovich connects uh, gravity, chemistry, electricity, cohesion, attraction, and repulsion. And so with the Boscovichian system, Nietzsche can rebuild the world from the ground up with will to power as the basis. It's because of this uh, sort of the mathematizing of the world of the later Pythagoreans um, Boscovich is called the modern Pythagoras. This is in the words of Boscovich's biographer, Lancelot Law White. He says that Boscovich is, quote, Pythagoras extended to cover process, end quote. And so, you know, White's assessment of Pythagoras is sort of at variance with what Nietzsche had to say about Pythagoras. So we can just take it that by calling Boscovich a Pythagoras extended to cover process, he's referring more to Pythagorean philosophy as expressed by the later Pythagoreans. 
Boscovich can be associated with the later Pythagoreans because, you know, these figures come after Democritus. And similarly, you know, for Nietzsche's purposes, he's charting a course of how materialism develops emerging in post-Enlightenment Europe, just as it did in ancient Greece. And so Boscovich is the figure to stand sort of in correspondence to the later Pythagoreans and thus completing the materialism that we see in the Greek uh, arena emerging with Democritus. And uh, with Boscovich, we can finally give the material explanation for things like consciousness, mind, values, and so on. Or if not Boscovich himself, Nietzsche can take the Boscovichian basis and weave that into his philosophy. I'm going to look at one final quote from Whitlock's commentary here, because, um, I mean, he does such a good job uh, throughout this, but here he describes the similarity between the ancient Pythagorean worldview and Boscovich. And he gives us an overall picture of how Boscovichian point particle theory sits in relation to Newton and Leibniz. Quote, Chemistry, atomism, Pythagoreanism overlapped with Nietzsche's intensive and extensive interest in Boscovich. Of far greater importance, however, is the Pythagorean construction of the world from points. Points in motion constitute lines. Intersecting lines create surfaces. Surfaces connect to make the Pythagorean five regular solids. It is precisely in this regard that Boscovich is known as Pythagoras extended to cover process, for such solids made of points, though not of five types, in physical processes are what Boscovich's theory attempted to describe. Boscovich also began with an image of the world as a vast mass of points in motion, interacting dynamically and kinematically in pairs. He constructed solid objects from these points and even described physical processes by reference to a point-particle world. Unlike the Pythagoreans, Boscovich saw his points as subject to inertia, retraction, sorry, attraction, and repulsion, as a function of their distance from each other, rather than of sheer number. Boscovich was eclipsed as the greatest European mind of his time only by two contemporaries, Sir Isaac Newton and Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. The inventors of calculus Newton and Leibniz embraced corpuscular atomism and monadology, respectively. Boscovich purposely devised a point-particle theory between Newton and Leibniz, but his system would suffer highs and lows of respectability until the advent of Michael Faraday, James Clerk Maxwell, Lord Kelvin, and other late 19th century scientists who acknowledged his genius. Leibniz's monadology was closely related to Nietzsche's own experimental time atomism, but Nietzsche rejected Leibniz's windowless monads for the Boscovichian principle of action at a distance. Boscovich's centers of force were to have inertia and forces dependent on the distance between two points. Nevertheless, even Boscovich's dynamic properties and non-corpuscular atomism, his action at a distance and field theory, did not posit an inner driving force. Boscovichian force is external. By conceiving of the will to power as the inner dynamic, Nietzsche would go beyond Boscovich and Leibniz, though he would only rarely refer to Boscovich by name in his major published works. End quote. And so after his study of the Preplatonics, 
interpreted through light of the modern philosophers of science in which Nietzsche sort of finds uh, the culmination of this project in Democritus and the later Pythagoreans and then in his own day in Boscovich, the only remaining element Nietzsche needs is the will to power in order to provide qualitative expression of the world. And of course, this expression includes the mind itself, Nietzsche, and uh, you know the subject, the willing subject, the conscious subject. Um, all of us are the will to power expressing itself. Um, Nietzsche can explain philosophy through his new theory because he, like all philosophers, is an avatar of the faculty of reason attempting to bound the world, which is yet another form of these quantas of power attempting to, uh, you know, push against and overcome other things, right? Overcome resistance and challenges. Um, Nietzsche thus encounters kindred spirits in his study, which is another thing he gains from this. It's not just his philosophy of science. So for example, his favorite is of course Heraclitus, but this should not overshadow the other admirable forerunners of Nietzsche's task in philosophy, especially figures like Democritus. But Nietzsche goes beyond all his influences. He goes beyond Longa by involving Boscovich in his system at all, and he even goes beyond Boscovich by um, sort of drawing on the Schopenhauerian idea of an inner content or essence. Nietzsche finishes his lecture on the later Pythagoreans with another cryptic remark that, quote, if only the Pythagoreans really knew what calculates the world, end quote. The implication is perhaps the will to power, but Nietzsche didn't really have that exact formulation at this point in his thought. Maybe he had the notion of it, but not the words, so we don't really know. Maybe we'll simply be left to wonder about that. Now, okay, let's take a look at some of the more extreme and therefore more interesting statements that Nietzsche makes about will to power where he seems to speak of it not merely as a psychological explanation, but as the single force that explains the world. Um, we can even see this kind of talk about will to power in at least one place in Nietzsche's public work, published work. It's a passage that's particularly instructive because even though Nietzsche puts material in quotation marks in this passage and seems to raise questions about some of the things he might have, well, taken for granted during his, you know, his philological period, his pre-philosophical period, this passage makes a lot more sense in light of this physical aspect of the will to power. And it makes a lot less sense if you're thinking of will to power in a purely psychological sense. And so we're going to look at uh, Beyond Good and Evil, Aphorism 36, which I've slightly abridged. Quote, Suppose nothing else were given as real except our world of desires and passions, and that we could not get up or down, or to any other reality besides the reality of our drives. For thinking is merely a relation of these drives to each other. Is it not permitted to make the experiment, and to ask the question whether this given would not be sufficient for also understanding, on the basis of this kind of thing, the so-called mechanistic or material world? In the end, not only is it permitted to make this experiment, the conscience of method demands it not to assume several kinds of causality until the experiment of making do with a single one has been pushed to its utmost limit to the point of nonsense. If I may say so, 
That is a moral of method which one may not shirk today. It follows from its definition, as a mathematician would say. The question is, in the end, whether we really recognize the will as efficient, whether we believe in the causality of the will. If we do, and at bottom, our faith in this is nothing less than our faith in causality itself, then we have to make the experiment of positing the causality of the will hypothetically as the only one. Will, of course, can only affect will and not matter, not nerves, for example. In short, one has to risk the hypothesis whether will does not affect will wherever effects are recognized, and whether all mechanical occurrences are not, insofar as a force is active in them, will force, effects of will. Suppose finally we succeeded in explaining our entire instinctive life as the development and ramification of one basic form of the will, namely, of the will to power, as my proposition has it. Suppose all organic functions could be traced back to this will to power, and one could also find in it the solution of the problem of procreation and nourishment. It is one problem. And then one would have gained the right to determine all efficient force univocally as will to power. The world viewed from inside, the world defined and determined according to its intelligible character, would be will to power and nothing else. End quote. And so, I think the very peculiar thing about how Nietzsche's thought developed after this initial immersion in materialism and anti-teleology, the it's the idea that he retains from that period is the quest to render an expression of the world in as few principles as possible and to do it without appeal to, you know, these like God in the machine explanations. Um, and so here he says, let's take, okay, we really believe in causality. Let's take one form of causality that we know is real or rather because in the context of the first book of Beyond Good and Evil, he's been very clear in his statements on truth and sort of pointing out, we don't actually know that it's real, but this is the thing that we have perhaps the most faith in, which is that the will is a causal force, right? And let's take that one principle and push it through to its ultimate conclusions, even to the point of absurdity. And so what does that mean where he's saying our belief in the will is synonymous with our belief in causality? I mean, he's saying that... In our own experience, we, we experience volition as a causal force. Whether it's free or not free, this is true for Nietzsche, either way. Uh, it's his way of talking about what people might call the experience of making choices, whether the choice is freely made or not. For Nietzsche, it's the will itself rather than rational, deliberative intellect that causes our actions. And so if it's permitted to talk of causes at all, then the causes will. This is the only immediate reality that we know. Why not begin from this position that will is the only given? Because the only given is our experience. This would mean, therefore, that will cannot affect quote-unquote matter, but only other expressions or centers of will, since we've already said that will is the only reality. Um, why not begin from the position of viewing the world from inside, from its intelligible character? The only thing that is given or intelligible to us. Um, and so the fundamental character of matter, that matter would simply be 
the mind's symbol for representing it, but the fundamental character of matter as a sort of experiment, this is the way Nietzsche phrases it, um, conceive of matter as basically being will, will being the, the essence of matter. So that might be one sense I kind of disagree with Whitlock, or maybe he's correct about Nietzsche during the period of the when he's lecturing as a philologist, but I think later he does sort of come down in the ideas. Once he starts thinking about will to power as an inner force or an inner intelligible character, he is not bracketing the question of matter, essence of matter any longer. He is asking what it is. Um, but it's still just an experiment, right? But Nietzsche says that his proposition of describing the most fundamental and single unifying principle as will to power is the only single philosophical principle one can use which describes all efficient force in the world. Which is very interesting. Like, that, you know, it's more explanatory than Schopenhauer's Will to Live or Spinoza's Canadus. That's what he's saying here. Um, and so, that if you're just thinking about Will to Power as a moral or psychological principle, the full force of that power doesn't really come through, or of that passage doesn't really come through, that he's saying will to power is the true character of the world, first and foremost, um, and that that's the most explanatory uh, lens we have at the moment in order to um, talk about it. Um, this issue, I think, is clarified in his notes. This is in will to power number 619. Quote, the victorious concept force by means of which our physicists have created God in the world still needs to be completed. An inner will must be ascribed to it, which I designate as will to power, i.e. an insatiable desire to manifest power, or as the employment and exercise of power as a creative drive, etc. Physicists cannot eradicate action at a distance from their principles, nor can they eradicate a repellent force or an attracting one. There is nothing for it. One is obliged to understand all motion, all appearances, all laws, only as symptoms of an inner event, and to employ man as an analogy to this end. In the case of an animal, it is possible to trace all its drives to the will to power. Likewise, all the functions of organic life to this one source. End quote. So while those... Uh, rigorous scientific minds of today who may be listening may have borne with me for quite a while in this discussion. We're getting to the point that Nietzsche's views maybe uh, are having less value towards answering questions in philosophy of science. Um, but, you know, maybe the best takeaway is that we're, we're gaining an insight into the way Nietzsche thinks and that he's and he has a valid criticism in the fact that we're content to say that things are, what is it? Well, it's a, it's a force without giving some definitive content by which we can describe what it means to invoke a force. And his idea of what it means to invoke a force is that this concept is yet another manifestation of will to power. And we can see his defense of Boscovich in this passage, even though Boscovich goes unnamed, right? He defends action at a distance, which is central to Boscovich's theory. And um, that his single mathematical expression explains the behavior of nature as it manifests differently depending on the scale of distance involved. And Nietzsche references repellent and attractive forces. It keyed to the description of Boscovich's force point particles. He references it in relation to will to power, which means that he is thinking about will to power in a physical sense, right? The sense of physics. 
Now, uh, his late, some of his later notes, as we go further into his career, as we've talked about, you know, he ends up taking a somewhat dim view of mechanism and, uh, thought that materialism taken too far itself sort of becomes a bit metaphysical. And I think that's because of the problem of causality, which I think Nietzsche genuinely doesn't believe that we can derive causality from anything right? That we're left regarding causality as either a sort of like artifact of our representation of the world, which means it's not independent of the human mind, or else we have to call it a sort of metaphysical force like Canadus, right? So mechanistic explanations don't ultimately do it for Nietzsche. And because of his insistence that the most real thing is the intelligible character, that's the only thing that's actually a given, that matter should basically we should start from the position that matter is will to power. Um, then, uh, you know, it's like, it's, it's less important for him to present a mechanistic world in the sense that everything is governed by cause and effect as it is to present the idea that the various phenomenal forms are simply, uh, can all be, uh, bounded within the explanation of Boscovician unified field theory. Right. Um, in the note numbered 624, Nietzsche argues against the physical atom. And so here he takes the inverse position that transforming qualities into quantities is in any way a useful thing. When Nietzsche writes, quote, the calculability of the world, the expressibility of all events and formulas, is this really comprehension? How much of a piece of music has been understood when that in it, which is calculable and can be reduced to formulas has been reckoned up? End quote. And he even acknowledges in the note number 627 that attraction and repulsion, which are central aspects of Boscovician physics, are fictions. And he says that this attempt to think about the world in a purely mechanistic sense is a desire to see causality everywhere. And he goes so far as to say in that note that, quote, the belief in cause falls with the belief in tele. Parentheses against Spinoza and his causalism, end quote. And so with everything we've talked about, that should be rather clear, right? It's a, he's actually giving a rather radical view that seriously departs from his earlier views as we've covered them in this talk, that to say that any belief in cause and effect constitutes a teleology, which Nietzsche will therefore oppose. And so Nietzsche's complex views on causality, I mean, uh, I've said it, uh, I think, elsewhere, or I think I might have brought it up in a Q&A, which is not going to be out yet to the public, but I might have to do an episode just strictly on causality. It's probably not going to be for a little while, but it really complicates the issue. It complicates the understanding of later Nietzsche's views of science rather considerably. But we also find in the notes collected in Will to Power a clear continuation of Nietzsche's quest to reshape the world into something which is fundamentally only will to power and to understand will to power as something all pervasive, something constitutive, (laughs) constitutive, I have so much trouble with that word of all phenomena. And so will to power is something which is descriptive of all becoming an attempt to bound the boundless, just as the pre-Platonics like Democritus were doing. And I think in his unpublished notes that we have in the will to power collection, Nietzsche is in his more ambitious moments. He thinks he has this element of will to power, which would allow him to take Democritus, take Boscovich, 
and uh, move on to this fundamental unifying theory that accounts for purposefulness and movement and procreation and nourishment. I'm going to be perfectly honest with all of you when I say that at the end of this, I still have a hard time wrapping my brain around everything Nietzsche is getting at in his philosophy of science and insofar as will to power can be understood as a natural or physical principle. And this is part of the reason why I think Nietzsche did not publish some of his more radical statements about will to power. It's why he only mentions Boscovich very rarely in his published work. I think there's a concern that his statements might be misunderstood or misrepresented or taken in a teleological or religious sense. Perhaps Nietzsche's skepticism of causality or his awareness of the contingency of all human perspective or similar such concerns led him to regard such a grand unifying philosophical theory as being impure thinking. This might be why Nietzsche abandoned the idea of will to power as a planned magnum opus. Maybe he considered it was just better not to go there (laughs) and let these ideas remain in the background of his published works, something which informs his ideas and informs the way he thinks, but it's best not to bring it into the foreground because of the misunderstandings that there could be. On the other hand, With this more scientifically rich understanding of what the will to power can be, I think we should now consider one of the most infamous passages of Nietzsche's work, and uh, it's actually the very last passage contained in the collection of unpublished notes uh, in Will to Power. It's rightfully infamous because if you haven't engaged with the full breadth of Nietzsche's ideas, such a passage can be really dangerous, I think. But it's one of the finest examples of gorgeous, overflowing Nietzschean prose. And I think it attains a powerful subtlety of meaning in light of these considerations of Nietzsche's scientific influences. And so the last note in Will to Power, aphorism uh, 1067, quote, And do you know what the world is to me? Shall I show it to you in my mirror? This world, a monster of energy, without beginning, without end, a firm iron magnitude of force that does not grow bigger or smaller, that does not expend itself but only transforms itself, as a whole of unalterable size, a household without expenses or losses, but likewise without increase or income, enclosed by nothingness as by a boundary, not something blurry or wasted, not something endlessly extended, but set in a definite space as a definite force, and not a space that might be empty here or there, but rather as a force throughout, as a play of forces and waves of forces, at the same time one and many, increasing here and at the same time decreasing there, a sea of forces flowing and rushing together, eternally changing, eternally flooding back, with tremendous years of recurrence, with an ebb and a flood of its forms, out of the simplest forms striving towards the most complex, out of the stillest, most rigid, coldest forms striving towards the hottest, most turbulent, most self-contradictory, and then again returning home to the simple, out of this abundance, out of the play of contradictions, back to the joy of concord, still affirming itself in this uniformity of its courses and its years, blessing itself as that which must return eternally, as a becoming that knows no satiety, no disgust, no weariness. 
This, my Dionysian world of the eternally self-creating, the eternally self-destroying, this mystery world of the twofold voluptuous delight, my beyond good and evil, without goal, unless the joy of the circle is itself a goal, without will, unless a ring feels goodwill towards itself. End quote. And so what do we find in this description of the world? It is a totality of unalterable size, not something blurry and undefined and not endlessly extended. To Nietzsche, the world is something definite, with definite boundaries and definite size. So it's not the indefinite of Anaximander, right? And it's ruled by transformations, dynamism of forms arising and passing away. Even though the total size, the totality of matter itself does not alter. So the fundamental, uh, you know, uh, we could say the fundamental material of the world changes in shape and arrangement, but nothing is created or destroyed. It's a household without expenses or losses, without increase or income. So the similarities there to Democritus and to Anaxagoras and even to Heraclitus are very clear. And what else does Nietzsche say about this world of his? Quote, a play of forces and waves of forces, at the same time one and many, increasing here and at the same time decreasing there, a sea of forces flowing and rushing together, eternally changing, end quote. This is the multiplicity of phenomena within the world of becoming. And these separate phenomena are really centers of force, force points, if you will, flowing and rushing and pushing against one another. This one force pervades everywhere. So, Boscovich, right? And everywhere, what do we find? Recurrence. The simple strives towards the complex, the hot towards the cold. So we even see preplatonic forces that were incorporated into the Nietzschean world, right? Warmth and cold and attraction and repulsion. Um, you know, the, the voice of Anaximander and Empedocles. And we might consider also how Nietzsche understands will to power as manifesting in life forms, which start as young and vigorous and uh, grow into maturity, and then their energy leaves them, and they, de they decline eventually. And so he sees strength as expanding until it eventually declines, something which bursts forth and then passes away. He sees weakness or dissolution as ever-recursive, always arising again to break down the various manifestations of will. And taking influence from Heraclitus, he sees this world as essentially innocent. It's beyond good and evil. It knows no disgust, no satiety. So he would reject the Empedoclean view of a metaphysical reality to love or hatred or the Schopenhauerian view of life, reducing to satiety and boredom, you know, this eternal suffering of desire and want. To Nietzsche, this world is eternally creating and eternally destroying, but it's ever innocent and self-affirming. It's the innocence of becoming the play of Aeon, the boy god of the Zodiac, building sandcastles on the beach and knocking them down. The world, just like the play of a child, has no goal, unless the circle itself is the goal, right? So in other words, no telos. We can only observe the pattern which the world produces blindly, which is endless recursion. The eternal spin of these forces manifesting creation and then bringing on destruction in an endless repeating dance. So Nietzsche then tells us, in no uncertain terms, his central principle uh, is the unity, the sole law or formulation from which he gets his picture of what the world is. 
And the ending of this passage is so good that now I've done most of the commentary although already, you know, um, and I've talked for a long time. So we're just going to end here with Nietzsche's words. Nietzsche concludes, quote, Do you want a name for this world, a solution for all of its riddles, a light for you too, you best concealed, strongest, most intrepid, most midnightly men? This world is the will to power and nothing besides. And you yourselves are also this will to power and nothing besides. End quote. That's all, everyone. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.